0: Hey everybody, this is SoHeidi and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts. And this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 23 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Solomon Eversol, Visual Merchandising Director for AG Jeans. This is part one of two parts of my interview with Solomon, and in this conversation, we discuss the creative process. With 15 years of corporate experience in the fashion industry, Solomon has figured out what really works to help himself and his team find and express their best creativity in an industry where we're constantly battling tight deadlines, late nights, and rushed projects. In the interview, you'll learn how to relieve yourself of creative pressure, why planning is one of the most essential things you can do to access and express your artistic side, and why the creative process can't be done in a vacuum.
1: If
2: we function in this creative world, um, we have to remember that we function in a creative world. We are not islands and our job is our job is actually to be collaborative because if we want the end result to be inspiring, then the process needs to be inspiring as well. So ideally we're pulling in people who know more than us.
0: Before we jump into the interview, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you enjoy this episode, the best way you can say thank you and give back is by subscribing and reviewing the show on iTunes. It only takes 60 seconds, but this small effort really helps the show grow and get discovered by more listeners. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash subscribe to do that now. I'd really appreciate it. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 23. Now on to the interview with Solomon. Welcome, Solomon, to the Successful Fashion Designer podcast. I would love to start with you introducing yourself to the audience and telling everybody about what you do in the fashion industry.
2: Uh, thank you for having me. It's super, I'm super excited about this. Um, so, um, I am visual director at AG Jeans, uh, and then I have a capsule collection under the label Solomon Eversol.
0: Awesome. And um, I'd love for you to kind of start out with talking about your your approach to creativity. So, you know, you and I have had some conversations before, and I know you lead a team of designers, and you really push them to get creative, to experiment, to explore new experiences. And this is something I hear from designers in my audience a lot, um, and just people in the industry, you know, coworkers and, and people I collaborate with, is how do you maintain creativity in an industry where we are constantly behind we 're battling deadlines we 're frantic to get stuff done and it can be really easy to let the creativity be the thing that gets pushed to the bottom of the list and And from some of the stuff you've told me in the past, you do a great job with yourself and your team of making sure that that doesn't get pushed to the bottom of the list. Because working in an industry like fashion, that's an essential uh, skill and an essential sort of muscle we have to flex. And so can you talk a little bit about the creative process and how you guys keep yourself fresh?
2: Yeah, uh, certainly. So I, um, I think it's probably important to note where I come from creatively, uh, and where I come from professionally. So, um, you know, I was, a uh, bright young wild child who couldn't decide between being an intellectual and being an artist. Mm. Um, and so I spent my, really my entire youth, uh, maybe up into my mid twenties, battling between these two identities. Like, am I smart? Or am I talented? Mm. Um, as though they were mutually exclusive.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, am I a, a, a business-minded, budget-centric uh, communicator, or am I an inspirer, a thriver, a uh, creator, an eccentric? You know, um, and so what ended up happening with me is uh, I, you know, I sort of wound my way from the performing and the visual arts into a very, very corporate position that required me to be creative and flex my intellectual muscle to figure out how to uh, communicate to people who are not creative things that to me seemed abstract, and uh and visceral Mm um you know so i would uh i would stand with people who had really they were salespeople. um you know all they really knew how to do was get a get a customer to buy something that they didn't come into the store wanting and uh, i do that from a creative perspective non-verbally uh, in my role as a visual director, and so to teach people how to do that without having to say anything um, in the placement of product and how you present something, in the positioning of lighting, in how you convince a customer to wind through a store, and so um, in in my current life, both as a you know, designing my own line and in um, managing a team. Out of fashion brand and helping them become really like happy, vibrant creatives. Um, it, to me, it's this balance. Uh, I definitely believe that creativity, or that most of the creative work that we do, is eighty to ninety percent logic. Right. So even uh, when you lay out a painting, it's it's about this composition. Like, how do you create tension? Where are these, you know, where are your principal figures placed? You know, what are your foreground, middle ground, background? How do you create that? And then there's this thing, there's this spark that as creatives we are blessed with, which is we can take something that seems completely invisible, uh, we can draw it through ourselves and apply it to that canvas. Something that that 80 to 90% of logic couldn't have predicted, um, you know, the... The wabi sabi element, the um, umami, you know, if you will. And so, with my team, you know, we are definitely in a, uh, you know, quote unquote, deadline driven business. So, with my business, with my intellectual background, what I realize uh, in helping motivate them is that I need to give them longer lead times so that there's more space to explore.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, you know, because as creatives, like we need to dance, we need to feel the space. Um, it it should be noted that I come from you know I was a dancer when I was I was a ballerina uh, up until the time I was in my twenties. Mm. Uh, a lot of the language that I use is you know is uh, around the music, the movement, the uh, filling of the space that I learned in a physical manifestation of my creative process and now i do it in a it you know it's it's much more tactical uh it's much more uh it's much more present and less ephemeral so with my team i definitely am uh, i empower them to be be planful and playful um And so, you know, typically nowadays, you know, we know what spring 2019 is going to look like, you know, we're already in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we shouldn't be doing things the night before we present everything for spring 19. Uh, Because why? Like, why would we want to stress ourselves out like that? So we could your way to live. <laughs> you know, um, there are plenty of things that will become urgent on their own. So anything that we can affect that, that we can have space with, like uh, where we can, we can go on inspiration trip after inspiration trip and tweak the initial idea. Uh, and then it's, it's fully expressed months in advance.
1: Yeah. And
2: we're not stressful. Uh, or we're not stressed or anxious.
0: Yeah. So. Um, go ahead, sorry.
2: No, no, no you're up.
0: Okay. Um, so the longer lead times and just, and you shared something with me in a previous conversation, I think it's called the six P's. Can you just share that really quickly? Oh yeah. yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
2: um, you know, being that I've been in the corporate world for so long, uh, cause now I think, good grief, uh, this February, it'll be like almost 15 years that I've been somehow attached to a corporate environment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I've worked with a lot of uh, CEOs and CFOs and COOs and uh, lots of people with C's in front of their title <laughs> and um, and this one woman Susan Kellogg who um, was really dynamic uh, is is really dynamic um, and inspiring. She one day very very flippantly just said, "You know, I really definitely believe in the six Ps uh, and." I asked for further information and she said, well, it stands for proper planning prevents piss poor performance, Mm -hmm. you know, and I like, I'm definitely a fan of those dumb uh, idioms that keep, that help motivate a team without having to be like too heavy handed. Um, I, I used to have this compositional exercise with, people who had never experienced composition where it's say, diamonds, diamond, uh, diamonds, diagonals and pyramids. Oh my. <laughs> and then we would, as though we were in the wizard of Oz, walk through the store and just be like diamonds, diagonals and pyramids. Oh my, You know, uh, because it should be, it should be that fun. And so Susan, you know, hands me this like gem of a, uh, an idiom: Proper planning prevents piss poor performance, and it made the objective of planning much less uh, anxiety-riddled. Because mm. you know, it's, it's like, oh yeah, well this is coming up, so six months from now we have, and we need to be ready for it. Cool. And Let's so- get ready.
0: Yeah, and so is that where like maybe if I interpret that correctly, it's like instead of just thinking about planning because some people just don't want to plan. I think especially creatives, they just want to work on their own schedule and on a whim, um, and, and I speak for myself partially and, and other people out there. I actually feel like I tend to lean more business than creative, um, although I do have, have pieces and parts of the creativity in me. Um, that planning can sound like something really boring and annoying and, and a chore that we don't want to do, yeah. but if we – approach it with this mindset of it prevents piss poor performance, then we're a little more excited yeah. about it because we know the end result of what the planning is going to give us. It's going to give us a great outcome. It's going to give us longer lead times. It's going to give us the time to have the creative freedom. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah,
2: because I, th- I think planning gets a bad name, um, you know, because it Because it sounds so boring, but uh, Twilight Tharp has this Twilight Tharp wrote wrote this really, really exceptional book for creatives that um, is called. uh, Don't quote me on this, but it's uh, Twilight Tharp. It's something about developing the creative habit, Mm,
1: okay?
2: Which, which puts this into two separate, like two strange ideas, right? Creativity and habit. So something that sounds fun, something that sounds boring. Um, But, you know, she has, she has these ways of helping you get into the creative process. Um, And what painting is really doing is it's removing obstacles that are, in my opinion, it's removing obstacles that get in the way of us being creative. Mm. So it's like, if in the middle of, um, you know, so if in the middle of choreographing, I'm searching for that piece of music that I forgot to pick up, then I've just wasted, you know, precious rehearsal time. Um, if in the middle of a painting, I'm looking for cadmium blue when I know that it's necessary for the painting then I've wasted precious creative time, time that I could be playing in cadmium blue. Um, And so, you know, that's, I, I don't, I I don't believe as creatives we're supposed to think about the end result of what we're doing. Mm. Uh, the, The creative process for me is definitely process based, but if I can eliminate as many obstacles as possible, that allow me to play so that there can be an end result, then we're good. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of developing uh, uh, a pretty aggressive holiday window. Like it's a big rollout. Um, I've been talking, I've been mainly using third party uh, fabricators and I had this idea the other day, now mind you we 're still we 're still over ninety days oh no're uh that 's not right we 're still we 're sixty days before we roll this thing out
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so I like I have all the bids, I know what the numbers are, I know what the materials are going to be, and then I had this idea that to me makes it much more interesting. And much more evolved, and I still have time to affect that, because I don't actually have to be in, the, in production for another, really like another twenty-five days, um, and that is such a relief. And so, I have no idea what the end, what the end result of this window is going to look like. I don't know how it's going to execute. Like, it may be shit for all I know. Who knows? Um, that's none of my business. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, but everything that I need is currently in place. So now I have time to let it evolve and prototype and see how it feels and make a like make a physical prototype. Walk through it, look at it, touch, feel, taste it, shift things, um, so that when we get to delivery and installation nationwide, it's something that uh that is bigger than i am you know in in the end i believe that that's what ends up happening with us creatively is we create these things or we we think we create these things we channel these things they're so much greater than we could have imagined them in our small uh intellectual minds
0: and um what what i also heard you say there was that you know it allows room for these like you know, you, your body like jolts awake in the middle of the night with this amazing idea of like, wait, what if we did it this way? And and that planning and that time gives you the opportunity to explore that versus if you're running so last minute, you'll never have that opportunity. You might not have even had that idea that, um, that, that right now working 60 days in advance, you've got 25 more days before you've got to really pull the trigger and say, okay, everything's going into production and you have the opportunity to sort of play and mold and, and wait, no, let's pivot here to use a business marketing term, pivot, yeah. but, but it gives yeah, you the liberty of that, right? I'm such a nerd.
2: <laughs> Let's <I know. laughs> pivot our
0: creativity. <laughs>
2: like, um, so most of, you know, most of the creative theorizing that I have come into um, or that I utilize is definitely like borrowed or adopted from other people. So I worked with this man who does not come from a creative background. Um, I worked under him at Seven for All Mankind. He's a visual, he is a visual director. He's very, very skilled. He acknowledges that uh, his creative, his creativity is limited uh, and he makes sure that he has like artists. I put those that in quotation marks uh, underneath him to really help uh, explore that creativity. But he talks about this idea that to me is very business, which he calls it the 80% rule. And I now teach this to anybody that I work with um, in any capacity, because I think it's necessary in getting rid of the onus of having to meet perfection, like eye to eye, is that if you if you start from zero, you can only ever get to 80%. percent mm so the first person who walks into a store and merchandises it, the first person who lays down their sketches uh, for a, you know a new line, the uh, the first person to approach uh, the choreographic realm can only take it to eighty percent. The next person who comes in can take it all the way to one hundred, one ten, mm. one fifty, two hundred. Uh, Because they are, their zero is now 80%. Wow. You know, which is why, like, which is why I actually think, uh, Apple is so successful because they're not inventing anything new. They're just taking, they're starting at somebody else's 80% and they're going, all right, we're going to blow this out of the water Mm. because all we're going to do is we're going to tweak this idea so that it's even more effective. So that it's even more magical, so that it's even more superlative And so, uh, you know, this is part of that proper planning prevents piss poor performance is that if I walk in on Monday and I can get it to 80% and then I I go home, I sleep, I wake up the next day and then I walk in on Tuesday, I'm the guy starting at 80 as my zero. I'm the guy who gets to take it to 100% because I am the second, I am the fresh set of eyes. We talk about that a lot.
1: Like, yeah.
2: Oh, it just needs a fresh set of eyes, you know? Um And if I allow myself the room, if I am planful in my creative process, then I can be that fresh set of eyes. I give myself the room to take it further to, you know, to, drop the and ums and the uh and uh uh, and make it like a beautiful succinct poem
0: um as i start with um (laughs) (laughs) we all all do right (laughs) so um it's interesting, because, as you were first saying that, starting at eighty percent and then you're able to take it to the one hundred and fifty two hundred whatever number beyond a hundred, my first thought was, okay, so you start with something maybe you don't start with a blank page, like you have to start with some type of inspiration that perhaps you've borrowed from other people, and that's fine because everything at at one point and another gets recycled, you know nothing is new anymore, and so you you made yeah. the reference with Apple, they take someone's idea and then they just explode it, and so I think there's something to be said or, or what I took out of that was, you know, you could start a blank sheet of paper. Um, I'd be curious to hear, you know, how you and your team start. Do you do you start at a blank sheet? Do you really pull stuff that you found out in, in various industries, galleries, shows, whatever, wherever you go to get your inspiration and then figure out how to – that's your 80% and then you t- start tweaking that and it ultimately can evolve into something that's uh, – 150% different than what you started with um, versus, you know, this sort of like staring at a blank canvas syndrome that I think we all can get sometimes. Hmm. So. Huh. Um,
2: I think I work both ways. Uh, so yeah, you know, I'm in an industry where everybody uses mood boards,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they and or Pinterest, or you sure. know, they they have their pins or their like inspiration folder, which makes me want to bang my head against the table. Oh, why? Um, because I'm it's, <laughs> it's like we have gotten so uh, so I, I I I feel personally, I feel like mood boards are actually for the people who cannot see it. Mm. Right. They're not to explain it to ourselves. They're to explain it to other people. And, uh, in typically in most of my, in most of my jobs, I've been hired because they know that I can see it and they're not worried. So it wasn't until like, I don't know. It wasn't until very recently that I started doing boards for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't use them for myself because so my personal creative process is I work from uh, what I call a Toni Morrison term. What is a Toni Morrison term? She talks about this idea of rememory, um, not memory. It's rememory. So in uh, in Beloved, one of the characters is walking along the street and gets this vision of another time in another place as though it's actually there, but it seemingly comes out of nowhere. And so she gets this glimpse into a world that is not hers, but is as personal as though it is. And so, um, you know, I I remember I was I was doing this collection. Uh, I had a women's wear line that uh, was super weird, hundred uh, percent reversible. Everything was reversible: mm. blouses, skirts, pants. I just love the idea of a two for one. Uh everybody loves a two for. Nobody actually <laughs> uses it. You know, you buy it because you're like, oh, isn't that novel? I have two outfits in one. You always pick a side, you always pick a favorite, but you charge the customer double because <laughs> it's a two for one. Right? Uh, so I had this I had this line and I I wanted to move like we've been doing very uh It had been, it was very traditional, like Macy's price point, um, very like comfortable for the Midwest, like easy three quarter length skirts that were reversible, not very inventive. And so I closed my eyes and I was like, I really want to do something that sort of harkens back to the practicality of my grandmother. So my grandmother was a, uh, first-generation American uh, from Hungarian immigrants, woman of the land, like lived uh, in New Mexico, Colorado, Arkansas, most of her adult life, raising five children and helping my grandfather redo farms. Her aesthetic was this, in in my mind's eye, the way that I remember her, she was... One of those perfect, like Georgia O'Keeffe-esque, uh, Frida Kahlo-esque, powerful women of the land, uh, who wore her battle scars as uh, as medallions, you know, as awards. And so, the, I I ventured into this into designing this collection of Reversible clothing that was based on what I remember her being this sort of like wild western woman, um, and I never looked at a picture of her because what I saw in my mind's eye is all that needed to serve this collection. Mm. All I needed was the feeling that I got from this, and it wasn't like I want trop you know I want uh, cactus print and I want it to be all like. Land tones and that, that sort of stuff never came into being because with this very clear inspiration in my mind and in my body, I walked into fabric stores. I pulled swatches. I did a few sketches. I did some watercolors and suddenly this thing was born. Um, Mark Morris, the choreographer, I, he, He talks about the way that he approaches choreography. And he always, uh, he says that he uses music that's very familiar. Because uh, music that he's lived with for a long time, because then he's not trying to invent something. He's realizing something that he's always known. Um, I'm sure he didn't use those words, uh, but that's what I feel he infers by... uh, when he talks about using music that he's known for a long time, so mm-hmm. it's much easier to choreograph uh, Swan Lake because you've heard it a thousand times like you've lived with it in the car in you've heard music versions of it on the elevator like you have given it to your children so that they can uh, learn about music you've you know you've seen it you've listened to it you've lived it. And now you're choreographing to it because it's so familiar to you versus something that's like brand new and out of nowhere. Um, It amazes me how I'm always returning to my original influences. I'm always returning to those things like, like my crazy style inspirations from when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Like why? (laughs) You should have abandoned those in high school. And yet it's so familiar to me. It's so palpable, you know, it's, um, and so of course I unearth that.
0: So I love that because on one level, I almost feel like me personally, I would feel like that was, I'm just taking the easy way out. If I'm like, I'm using that as a crutch because it is something that's so comfortable and so familiar. And that as a creative Like I almost feel myself as you're saying this, as we're having this conversation right now, I'm in my own head. I'm almost putting this pressure on myself of, but no, I have to come up with something brand new. I have to be totally inventive from scratch. And you're telling me it's okay to go back to the familiar. And like, I felt this relief. (laughs) (laughs) Is that weird? (laughs) Does that make sense? No, because (laughs)
2: So like you know our initial conversation was about uh you know my experience with Illustrator mm-hmm. and my team's experience with Illustrator mm-hmm. and I'm like why wouldn't you use the tools that you know how to use
1: Mhm
2: right like I um I am I am Let's see is that true I was about <laughs> to say I'm not an inventor um and it, that is not true because we are all inventive, right? So, um, so my friend, Pacey, who I, he's, he's a real mentor for me. Um, he always helps level set and he was, he was a big deal in the ad in the ad world in the 1960s and 70s. And his. his And then a big deal in the political world for much longer than that. Um, but we are constantly talking about contemporary art because, you know, I walk into these museums and they just do my head in because they're like, oh, where's, like, where's the skill? You know, where's the refinement? Mm. But, um, and then I, you know, essentially, I do contemporary. I do contemporary art installation for retail. Mm-hmm. So it's like the lowest paid version of uh, you know contemporary artwork that you can find in the modern world. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, it's like well, wait, wait, you you only get paid this much a year, and you're doing these like giant, like multi city installations. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I digress. So we talk about this idea that. Really, everything's recycled
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know every everything that we look at is a form that 's embellished uh, or a form an embellished form that 's reduced uh, and so you know you look at like i 'm currently sitting in my dining room and There are two pieces of furniture. There's a 1930s chinoiserie China cabinet. And then there's this mid-century, like mid-century, very late mid-century, late 60s, early 70s uh, tube structure chair. And I'm looking at these two things and I'm like, okay, so here's something that is Definitely based on two hundred years of hand carving, and uh, but made a little more commercial so that it meets an American audience in this like Chinese, Chinese Chinese-esque bureau. And then here's something that's very modern that's still based on you know a thousand years of how chairs are made. Like it still essentially functions as a four-legged thing. Mm-hmm. Neither of them are new. Both of them feel new to me because of the juxtaposition of them sitting next to each other. But mm. That's what we do is we, you know, uh, you can walk a, there was this movement that happened in retail uh, about 10 years ago where retail started becoming much less white box oriented and much more residential. Why? Because it changed the way that customers related to apparel So they walked into these stores and they would sit down like there was no seating other than by the fitting rooms
1: Mm.
2: 10 years ago, unless you were in a very expensive store. And that's because it was a very expensive store that could afford the luxury of that space. But the juxtaposition of creating these comfortable seating environments and putting artwork up that had no relationship to an ad campaign or a piece of product and was just, there to make you feel like you were a little more at home left well, you feeling your relationship to the product was that you could just buy it and wear it out as though it had just come from your closet instead of this austere separate idea of elevated clothing experience, hyper luxury, unattainable, but I must have it. And that is that was the artistry of somebody who was a, you know, who was a visual director or retail professional or creative director who decided to change that juxtaposition, something familiar, but something unfamiliar or seemingly unfamiliar. Um, so home in a store weird. Yeah. You know. And now that's, that is, a, that's our, almost our, the only language in which we shop these days. Like even when you go to Whole Foods nowadays, you know, it's like, They have places for you to rest and engage with product in a personal way that didn't exist before.
0: And so it's almost like we're pulling all of the, uh, it's not the tools, what's the word? Um, The, all the elements that we're working with, everybody's pulling them out of the same bag, but then it's a matter of how you combine them that makes it unique. The juxtaposition, as you, as you've mentioned many times.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jung talks about this. Uh, the, so Jung talks, the, the you know, renowned psychologist Jung talks about the the collective unconscious. Right? There's this whole ether of uh, of mind that is invisible to us that we pull from all the time. Um, which is why, like, there, there's this history of spontaneous, spontaneous, simultaneous invention in the world, like. You know, the atom bomb is probably the most uh, interesting because it was in, invented in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And then three days later, uh, it was also invented in Germany.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: And it's a this is a very complex thing that's being invented um, simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Meisner also talks about the collective unconscious, but he talks about it in this way where like so we can pull we all pull from the same place in this uh creative place i've i've come to believe that it's rooted in the idea of uh nothing in the universe is ever created or destroyed it's only reused like mm-hmm. this is a scientific idea um and so there's there are all of these ideas out there that we reach into the blind and as creatives it's our job to pull them out um you know, we we are the messenger from Mount Olympus, bringing it down to the people. That's our role, is to pull the invisible into the visible world. And so, um, yes, there's this place from which we all pull. And it's how we express it through our unique vision that makes it unique, mm-hmm. you know, that makes it something that's special uh, and new, yeah, sort of, uh, juxtaposition.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. And it's, um, I actually feel like as a creative, um, you know, although I, I do say I, I tend to lean more business and, and I think that's a smaller portion of my brain and my instincts are creative, but it's still there. And um, I just like that because it, it really does, and I mentioned this earlier, it takes some weight off my shoulders of this like pressure. I'm like, it's okay, I can use the same, Materials, the resources, the elements, the inspiration—whatever, however you want to call it—and then it's just a matter of how you assemble it to create something new and unique and fresh. Um, it's yeah. relieving, I honestly. Mean,
2: that's, that's why I love, you know, um, I, you know, I reference Elizabeth Gilbert's book, *Big Magic*. Yeah. <laughs> to you, and you know, because everything. I, I, as creatives, I feel like we put a great deal of pressure on ourselves to figure everything out. Like, because, you know, it has to come from us. And we feel like, you know, it's our, uh, it is our responsibility to, uh, to design it, stitch it, build it, finish it, pack it, deliver it, and it be all ours. Um, and it be all new and it be the most inspiring thing you've ever experienced, Um, which is really arrogant. uh, Because one, if we function as, if we function in this creative world, um, we have to remember that we function in a creative world, right? We are not islands. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, And our job is our job is actually to be collaborative because if we want the end result to be inspiring, then the process needs to be inspiring as well. So ideally we're pulling in people who know more than us. Um, and we're pulling in people who take it to the next level to, who help us go from 80% to infinite. Um, and we don't worry about the idea being new because it's our idea. And it's something that, uh, that inspires us and that's what makes it inspiring. I, um, so my, my current men, my current collection of clothing is, it was men's wear. It's now, it's now much more turning into a unisex and children's line. But one of the things about it is I use principally, uh, Dutch wax cloth or African fabrics. And I started doing this, I don't know, five years, more than maybe six or seven years ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And shortly after I started making these, you know, very short run uh, pr- production runs, African fabric or Dutch wax cloth started showing up in a big way in other people's collections. And my first thought was, well, I can't use that anymore. mm Right, because yeah. it's some it now like now other people are doing it. Why can't I do it? Like, I mean, it's no longer new, um, and it's like, honey, it wasn't new when you picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, you know, you picked it up because it inspired you. Like, the history of Dutch wax cloth fabric, which is. Uh, well worth researching the how it is used in West Africa, how it came to be uh you know really a uh, a icon of africa that 's not even african in in its heritage you know and then how like all of that for me was inspiring that 's why I started using it, so why would it matter if somebody else is and why not explore how i 'm using it? and not worry about what they're doing, which is why for the most part, I try and avoid following fashion. Like, you know, it's much, it's much more interesting to look at how the homeless are dressing than how the Kardashians are. Um, cause let me tell you the homeless, it's amazing what is going on like in, uh, in street style when you have no money, <laughs> like it's just incredible. the yeah the things that you'll put together versus like what your stylist told you to wear. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like it, there's no necessity for it to be new. Uh, let it just play.
0: Um, and Okay, I I want to I want to go so many directions, and there's a couple things I really do want to talk about. One thing I just want to point out with this comment you make of the Kardashians versus the homeless, which is so fascinating to me, is this concept of constraints can be constraints within creativity can be your biggest asset, and um, you know, you and I touched up on it. Or, or this, I, I think I could apply it to a conversation you and I had earlier, um, prior to this conversation about constraints within your skill set in illustrator and how sometimes that makes you mess up or figure out the way this tool works and you're like wait i never knew that's how it would work and it made you discover something new versus if you know how to do everything um then you know arguably that could just shift your creativity in a different direction um but with the kardashians and the homeless the constraints of what they have access to makes them interpret and and um do things that and create things that maybe never would have happened had you had access to everything. And I I want to finish on that with one thing that I wanted to bring up earlier and we got sidetracked or not sidetracked. The conversation went a different direction, but this concept of constraints and how it can relate to constraints within time, because, you know, we talked a lot about planning and having the time to go through the creative process process. One of the challenges I have, and I I, I believe other people experience, is almost this curse or the luxury of too much time and how that can, Mm. um, you know, you start maybe not there's just like not enough pressure or something which is a sounds like a terrible thing to say. (laughs) But um I've experienced it firsthand with many things where I'm almost like this is the worst I mean I feel like a total jerk complaining about this, but I'm like I have too much time on this and it's not I'm not being productive, I'm not pushing myself out of my comfort zone as much as I could be because of this luxury or curse of time. I don't know. Does that resonate with you? Have you ever thought about that?
2: Well, so I, uh, the founder of Jenner
0: mm-hmm.
2: wrote a book called fashion, uh, fashion designers survival guide. Um, and she's like, look, you, you, before you launch this thing that you were launching, take your time. She's like, when you're in it, when it's like once it's launched and she's like design two or three seasons while you have the time before it's officially out in the world.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, She's like, because once you're in it, you're in it. You, there's no, there will be no more time because now you are not just dealing with the creative aspect, but you're dealing with everything else that goes along with it. The logistics and shipping and making sure that your accounting's all done. And, Making sure that your supply chain's in order, and now you're now you're worried, right? <laughs> now you're under the gun,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and and it seemed like the craziest idea because it's like, well, I've had the idea, so I'm going to make it, and it's going to be out in the world right now, today. It needs to be, um, but
1: uh,
2: take like take that time. I mean, I definitely like. Um I I may be theorizing like right now in real time but I think there's something to be said about most artists freshman effort. Um you know like especially with with some of my favorite authors like their first book is the one that really thrills me. Mm. Like the most you know, and it may like maybe they wrote it while they were in college and it there wasn't an urgency to it. There was just a desire to write. Like there not a desire, there was a need like, to put this thing on paper. Um and and so they took their time and they invested in it and then it had its own life. And you you can feel the passion and the Uh, uh, the brilliance in it. I mean, maybe my favorite example is Toni Morrison because, you know, she writes The Bluest Eye and it's stunning. It is a stunning piece of literature. And she has, I mean, she has had some really incredible, like she's a brilliant writer, but there's something that's so wonderful and innocent about The Bluest Eye because it came from this place that is uh, new and fresh, and and that there, it feels like there's time in it. And actually, one of the themes is uh, time and like what it does to us. But <laughs> so, I you know, we all get stuck with cre- with urgency. Um, there are things that are urgent. Uh, you know, you you can't I get it. Somebody is going to come to your desk and be like, "I need this tomorrow." Yeah, you know, and then you have to go through the like system of prioritizing. Um, you know, thank God for for a super corporate life and uh, this thing called the Franklin Covey. I don't know if we all remember that, but um, Franklin Covey was this you know based on Benjamin Franklin's principles of of time management and organization. Um, and one of the things that you do is you do this priority matrix. So you have urgent, not urgent, important, not important. And so things can be like urgent and important. Those have to get done immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if it's not urgent and it's important, you can take more time with it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not urgent and not important, like that could go on for years. Um, (laughs) And you know, and so I, I still I still use that priority matrix to uh, relieve myself of the stress of urgency.
1: Mm.
2: but you know, and there's there are these like pet projects that to me uh, are important, and so I increase their level of urgency because I like they're very important to me, and I feel like they need to be in the world today. Um, and so they move up that priority matrix, and then there are other things that like that are totally folly like that are just silly things that i 'm making just to make um, and those can be down at the bottom and I can play with, like I can play with those for a long time uh, until they 're just right, and they feel like they're it 's ready to be exposed.
0: So I want to bring up again the, the book Big Magic, which um, you referenced earlier by Elizabeth Gilbert. And you recommended it to me in a prior conversation, and I'm about halfway through it. And, and I would highly recommend everybody listening to check it out, um, either an audiobook book or, or read it. But she talks a lot about going through the creative process for yourself and doing these expressions for yourself, whether it be painting a painting, designing um, a collection, Uh, Writing a book, whatever it is, go through that process and do it for yourself. And the result of that is going to be so much more creatively powerful than if you do that creative process for someone else. Now, obviously, we don't always have the luxury of that. We, many of us work in jobs, we have deadlines, we have to meet these, these, um, these time constraints, but when we have the opportunity and like you said, you know, you have these projects, these pet projects, and I think we all have many of those in our life. Give yourself the time and go through that creative process and, and be selfish about it. Like that's okay. That's a relief.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I I'm, um, it, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up specifically. I, one of I've been having this conversation with a lot of people lately about why we make. Um, And I, you know, it's, I do believe that the craft of being creative is a selfish interest. Mm. So what um, I created this backpack uh, many years ago, it's one of the things that's like, that actually sold well when I made it. Um, I tend to find that, things that I make have a real lag time before they start selling. But Mm -hmm. this was one of those things where I was living in New York city. My creative studio was in the Brooklyn Navy arts. I needed something that I could get on my bicycle, ride across the bridge, Mm -hmm. land in Manhattan and walk into a business meeting and not feel like a teenager. <laughs> uh, right because yeah. like you, you take a backpack into a business meeting and you feel like a 14 year old you yeah. just you know got off the school bus and it's like ooh <laughs> I need something that feel and I wanted it to be to feel creative and elegant it also needed to like hold a laptop and a portfolio and materials if I needed like what does that look like? So I made it. And then once it was done, I looked at it, and I was like oh this is this is worth making more this is worth other people fulfilling this may actually meet other people's needs and not just mine
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and for me that's uh, that's the selfishness of this business uh, mm-hmm. you know i i i do one of the subtle distinctions for me though is um so I have I have this very specific definition for art, you know, uh, and not just capital A R T art, but like everyday useful practical in our world art. Um, and art is a is an introspective moment taken public. Mm. So it's something that I experience inside, an experience that I have that I've now decided to manifest externally and share with other people. It doesn't exist as art until it is something that I've made available to other people. Maybe it's one other person, maybe it's a, a million other people, but it has to be something that has been shared. Um, uh, before that, if it's something that I've kept for myself and hidden away, like the songs that I wrote because I learned how to play guitar, but I have never shared with anybody. Mm-hmm that's just craft, you know, that's mm-hmm. just play. That's um that's uh what small works on paper. Um, so I went to this David Hockney retrospective in San Francisco and I've seen my, I've seen a bunch of David Hockney's major works on public display.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I found my way in, into this room that was uh collections mm-hmm. of his sketchbook. So things that he never really meant to be public
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that were like, they were so inspiring. I believe that when they were in his bookshelf, they were practice. They were experimentation. They were craft, just refining his craft. But The moment they were on display, the moment that I was allowed to experience them as a participant in his creative process, they became art. Um, And so there's a a selfishness in in the craft, but creativity for me in the end has to be selfless. I have to be willing to take it out of the suitcase and let other people experience it. Whether they're going to like it or not, that's none of my business. Um, but there has to be this selfless aspect to it. Uh, other, you know, otherwise it's just uh, I'm just a Midwestern housewife doing macrame in her basement.
0: Mm. Okay, so you this, know. yeah, no, 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 no. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and no judgment on that. No, no, way. no, no, no. I love being Midwestern. Doing <laughs> macrame in her basement. <laughs>
0: That concludes part one of my two-part interview with Solomon. Watch for part two next week where we'll pick up right where we left off, but our conversation shifts from the creative process to overcoming fear. I love the second part just as much as the first and can't wait for you to hear all the great mindset shifts and insights Solomon introduces us to to help us overcome this often crippling emotion. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 23. And since you made it this far, you must have liked the episode. Did you know that the best way you can say thank you and give back is by subscribing and reviewing the show on iTunes? It only takes 60 seconds, but this small effort really helps the show grow and get discovered by more listeners. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash subscribe to do that now. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for all your support.